Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Stand By Me. The novella, The Body, was written by Stephen King and was originally published in the collection Different Seasons in 1982. And the film adaptation directed by Rob Reiner came out in 1986. And we're doing another Stephen King adaptation. It's been quite a while. It's been like over a year and a half. So the last one we did by Stephen King is Dr. Sleep, I believe. Yeah. And that was in November of 2019. So we're getting close to two years since we did a Stephen King adaptation, which (laughs) we've been doing the podcast for over four years. But if you've been listening to the podcast for any of that time, or if you've gone back to listen to some of our episodes, we did a lot of Stephen King episodes. We needed a cleanse. <laughs> in that year, we did uh, The Shining yeah. to lead up to Dr. Sleep. And then we did all of it for the uh, two-part new films. Yeah. Um, in the past, we've also done Pet Cemetery. Yeah, we did Christine. Christine. Yeah. I think that's all of them. There may be one more in there, but... Needless to say, we did a lot of Stephen King, and I think after the whole it thing, and then doing Dr. Sleep, like, not too long after that, we were like, I think we need to give Stephen King a break. I need to cleanse the toxins out of my body. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We love Stephen King. We do. We definitely have, like, a a love-hate, I think, relationship with his books. But it gives us a lot to talk about. It does. The episodes are always really fun. Especially uh, the mixed bag history of his adaptations. Oh, yeah. uh, Which is always uh, fascinating to discuss. Yeah, and we wanted something short. We've talked about this in other episodes, but we're in the process. We just bought a house. We were moving in, and then we went to visit my sister in California. So we had all of this stuff happening all at once, and we wanted to keep doing the podcast. So we were trying to pick short books and novellas to do podcast episodes on. So we had the idea to do Stand By Me, which is based on a novella that appeared in a collection of four novellas titled Different Seasons. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, Different Seasons also included the, I don't know if these are um, the titles of the stories in the novella, but Shawshank Redemption. Yep. And uh, Apt Pupil, which is also another Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. Uh, the fourth one in this uh, series did not has not had an adaptation yet. I mm-hmm. forget its name. But uh, so, yeah, like a lot of um, adaptations came from this book alone. Yeah. And it's really interesting because all four of these novellas are not necessarily Stephen King's usual suspense horror. No. Yeah. Which is why they were all kind of published together under this title of different seasons as being something kind of different for Stephen King, because this came out in the 80s, you know, at the height of Stephen King's popularity, as if he's not still popular. But, you know, he was really popular at this time and really well known for his horror fiction. And so to have all these short stories, novellas, to be not really of that genre, I think Mm. they wanted to just kind of brand it all together. It's also interesting because we had like a loose discussion earlier about how some of his most well-received adaptations 
are based on stories that are less science or less horror and less science fiction than like a lot yeah. of his other books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have this uh, Stand By Me, which is, you know, not sci-fi at all. Yeah. Same with Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. which came from this collection. Misery. Misery. Also uh, directed by Rob Reiner. Yes, also by Rob Reiner, as well as The Green Mile, which does have sci-fi elements, but kind of a different less horror themed and also just kind of a softer science fiction. Yeah. So a lot of his most well-received adaptations, I'll say, are kind of like less what he's known for. Yeah. Which is fascinating. It is interesting. And there's so many bad Stephen King adaptations out there. (laughs) So it is really nice to be like, all right, we got a good one here. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Stand By Me. Yes. Uh, Or The Body. The Body. I'm so glad they changed the name. I know. It's a bad title. Because like... (laughs) <laughs> in my head, I'm like, okay, well, you could think of it as, like, it's also Gordon's body, like, as he yeah. grows and changes. But, like, eh. eh. <laughs> I don't really think there's a lot of textual evidence for making that connection or anything. It just no. is kind of a bland title. I agree. Uh, but the story is told from the perspective of the main character as an adult. Yeah. And he's kind of older, and he's reflecting on his childhood in this specific event and writing about it is kind of a, um, uh, like a memoir. Yeah. Yeah. And his name is Gordon, but in the story they call him Gordy. And this takes place in like the 1959, specifically around that time. So the adult is reflecting back on this like bygone era of his childhood and he's 12 years old. It's like right before school's about to start he and his other three best friends are about to start junior high, but the summer's not over yet. And we find them in their treehouse clubhouse, uh, playing cards, uh, telling dirty jokes. Um, <laughs> they're betting money. They're smoking cigarettes. They're having a good old time. Yeah, it's just a great setup. It's super, I don't know, almost cliche, but like fun. Yeah. Um. Something that actually struck me very early on in this film, and it this movie reminded me, and I should say the reverse, because this other movie came out later. Yeah. But it reminds me a lot of The Sandlot. Yes. Because you have, like, the older person narrating on their life <laughs> of this specific time and moment. There's a tree house that's really cool with, like, the kids. Mm-hmm. The 50s vibe. Feels very nostalgic. I mean, The Sandlot has to at least be aware of its, like, influence in terms of Stand By Me. Definitely. But it's funny because I'm more familiar with The Sandlot, honestly, than this <laughs> film. So I was like, oh, it's like The Sandlot. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, no, Stand By Me came first. Yes, exactly. Uh, this is a lot uh, more risque, though. Yeah. Uh, so the first kid to talk about would be Gordy, the uh, narrator and main child, mm-hmm. played, by Will, played by Will Wheaton. Yes. And Gordy's brother, older brother, has just recently died in a car crash And he's still dealing with that. And also his parents are really devastated. So the whole family is kind of dealing with Gordy's brother's death in their own ways. Yeah. And you get the idea, too, that like this group of kids is made up of kind of like uh, miscreants and like troublemakers. And Gordy's kind of like not the odd man out. But, like, he comes from the most, like, middle class Yeah, family. his parents don't seem like they're struggling like no. these other kids' families are. And they also seem like, despite their dysfunction, 
you know, Gordy is not being like routinely abused. No. Or neglected specifically. It's more of like an an emotional abuse of like his parents' indifference towards him. Yeah. Which we'll definitely talk about more later. But yeah, I agree. Gordy's more like the most stable in the most stable family, I'd say. Yeah. And the dad kind of says something later on about like, why can't you have friends like your brother did? Yeah. In fact, he calls Gordy's friends uh, two Phoebes and a thief. Yeah, I, kind of saying like two feeble minded kids. Yeah. Which I guess was a <laughs> term used back Two Phoebes. Yeah. Not great. It, it sounds it sounds pretty insulting. Like yeah. even if you weren't quite sure what he meant. Yeah. <laughs> Who's next? Uh, Let's talk about Chris. Yes. uh, Played by River Phoenix. And Chris is kind of like the tough kid of the group. Yeah. But it's interesting because like. He's also probably the most emotionally mature. Yeah. Super emotionally intelligent. Yeah. And I think he has had to raise himself. Mm -hmm. Essentially, we find out that his dad is an alcoholic, like a raging alcoholic, and is also physically abusive towards Chris and his siblings. And his mom seems indifferent, or at least a passive participant in this. Yeah, honestly, until near the very end when the mom is mentioned, I was like, Oh, I thought the mom was dead. <laughs> like, I mean, she essentially is. I mean, yeah, she's like not involved, but like I forgot that she was even alive or like playing any, you know what I mean, was even at the house to any degree. Yeah. And Chris has older brothers, too, who have all kind of fallen into lives of like criminal activity, drug use, alcoholism as well in the book. Um, we're told that Chris is actually afraid to drink. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. And like is aware enough to be like, I don't want to drink a drop of alcohol in case it's like hereditary. And I mean, <laughs> for a child to have to worry about that. I know. Is so sad. It is. Uh, but I also love too because it talks about like in, in different times and moments in his life growing up. I mean, he's 12, but like, yeah, he was kind of pressured or, you know, uh, pushed by his friends to like, you know, have a drink or have a beer or something. And he was just like, no, I don't want to. Yeah. But because he's kind of that kind of like adds to his like coolness or his toughness. The fact that he's like, I don't want to do this and kind of doesn't let it bother him. Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. And his family reputation is brought up a lot. The fact that his dad is a known alcoholic, that his brothers are like known lowlifes in the town. Basically, everybody, including the teachers and every like authority figure in Chris's life, doesn't really expect anything good from him. In fact, they don't really want him to succeed because they want him to fit into their box of like that no good Chambers family. Yeah, yeah. So I think Chris comes from like a really he's an interesting character from an interesting kind of specific background. Yeah. Let's talk about Teddy. Teddy. Teddy, like, just reading about him in the book. Yeah. Like, I kind of had an image of him from the film in my mind, but, like, just reading about him, he's such a specific and unique character. Yeah. That just, like, comes out of the page Mm -hmm. so easily. Yeah. I think the actor's name is, like, Corey Feldman or something. Yeah. Um, And Teddy is kind of wacky, like, He is a little disturbed, which makes sense because you find out pretty quickly. The movie tells us this in voiceover from the the older narrator and the book just tells it to us flat out that Teddy's father is a war veteran from World War Two. Yes. 
and he was a part of the storming of the beaches of Normandy. Yeah. And has just awful PTSD from that entire situation. And unfortunately, that made him. I, I mean, I can't say if that like made him abusive, like if that what would or wouldn't have been a part of his personality regardless. But I think it made it worse for sure. Yeah. And it caused him to press uh, Teddy's head against a stove and like burn his ears off basically yeah this incident led to teddy's father being institutionalized yeah and now teddy and his mom are really like hard up for money Mm -hmm. they in the book um stephen king talks about the mom needing to have like renters stay in the house oh yeah and like teddy visits his father every week in the hospital and it's really sad because you can tell right away that teddy doesn't really blame his father and is not mad at his dad for what happened to him. Yeah. But he doesn't know how to explain it. And so the way he's internalized it has been like extremely toxic. And in fact, he is often engaging in like risk taking behavior, like, you know, dodging trucks on the road just for fun, just to prove that he can kind of having this Almost suicidal tendency. Yeah. Almost like he's trying to prove something either to himself or about his dad to others. Yeah, because like and he's he's grown to like kind of idolize the military. Yeah. And, you know, wanting to join the military himself when he gets older and he just kind of is like almost obsessive about it. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, sees his dad as this hero who, despite everything he did to Teddy, Like, you know, he not only has sympathy for his dad, but also kind of like idolizes him in that way. Yeah. Um, And yeah, and it's one of these things where like there's this quirky, funny quality to him. Yeah. As a 12 year old. But I think like, you know, you as the reader and the viewer of the film just kind of know that like as he gets older, it's just going to get worse. More toxic and more twisted. Yeah. Like he would he needs like immediate like. Uh, psychological like intervention and help yeah to like sort through like all the trauma he's been through Mm -hmm. and without that like things are probably going to rapidly like unravel in his life yeah and then last but not least is Vern who is probably like the dumbest of the group (laughs) yeah (laughs) and he's definitely portrayed that way in the movie the movie also kind of makes jokes about him being fat which he's like not Not, at all (laughs) Um, yeah, played by Jack O'Connell, mm-hmm. who you may recognize from the cinema masterpiece of Kangaroo Jack, the film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, um, I mean, Vern is just great. Like, he's so, I like that, like, everyone else has really heavy things going on. Yeah. But Vern is just so simple. Yes. And so funny. <laughs> and... I just love him so much. I mean, he doesn't really have a specific thing, and I wish he did maybe a bit, but we do know that, like, his mom, who's the only person we really hear about in the book, doesn't really give a fuck, it seems like, and his older brother kind of bullies him a lot. His older brother's in this gang with known bully Ace and kind of gives Vern a hard time a lot. And there's this thing with Vern where he (laughs) had this jar of pennies and he buried them and had a map of where they were under the porch. And then his mom threw out the map because she was cleaning his room or something. And now he can't find the pennies and he's just been digging under his porch for pennies. so funny. In the movie, it's just been like for a while. In the book, he's been digging for pennies for four years. (laughs) 
And like the book describes how like the estimation of like how much how many pennies there were like at first yeah. it was like a couple dollars and then it was like five dollars and then it was like ten dollars <laughs> like he keeps overestimating how much money there is in yeah pennies. and i love in the book how like his friends keep trying to tell him that his like abusive and annoying older brother probably dug up the pennies and stole them from him yeah. like as soon as he buried them but Vern <laughs> doesn't want to believe he doesn't want to lose hope in the dream of the jar of pennies even. yeah <laughs> um but this is kind of funny in a really funny way how the story begins um Vern it has rushed to the treehouse I love he forgets the knocking yeah. password to get into the treehouse. And apparently that was an idea from the child actors. Oh, really? That he would like forget. And it's like a good introduction for him being kind of like the dumb one. I agree. It is great. <laughs> but while he was recently digging for the pennies under the porch, she overhears his brother talking to one of his delinquent friends <laughs> and he overhears that they had... Uh, boosted a car in town and driven it out like, you know, miles from town to these train tracks. Yeah. And had accidentally discovered the body of this child who had gone missing recently. Yeah. A few towns over and people have been kind of looking for him, but hadn't heard anything. And so Vern is there to tell them we should go check out this body. I mean, the movie just, (laughs) and like it plays out well in the, the book too, but the, cinematic quality in the film of like he's all excited about this thing and the other kids just being kids they're giving him a hard time they're giving him a hard time (laughs) and interrupting him and then like i love the way it's directed how like the conversation naturally just turns back to the cards and away from Vern and not disregarding him and then he interrupts it all by saying like you guys want to see a dead body yeah and it's so classic (laughs) and so i don't know just this whole concept is so great because like it is this really heavy thing for these 12 year olds to get involved in. Yeah. But it also is so believable kind of like how it could happen. Yeah. And there's not like necessarily stakes to it off the bat, but it's still like a serious situation. Yeah, I agree. And they want they have this idea that if they find the body, not only will they get to see it, which is their curiosity. Yeah. But then they can tell people about it and pretend that they were the ones that found it. And then they can be heroes. Yes. So they'll get the fame. Yeah. So they create this plan where they're each going to say they're staying at someone else's house. And, you know, that whole song and dance that kids have. They're going to camp out in the backyard. Yes. Uh, Vern sets up like a tent in his backyard with flashlights just turned on so it'll look like they're up all night. Yeah. <laughs> Genius. Yes, brilliant. And they say that he's dumb. I know, right? <laughs> but uh, so they're all going to camp. They're going to like hike along the railroad tracks from Castle Rock, which I think this is the first adaptation we're discussing that is set in Castle Rock. I think correct? so, too. Yeah. And, and this is like kind of famous, you know, in Stephen King lore, because Castle Rock, Maine is a town that takes or that is the setting for a lot of his different stories. Yeah. He made it up, though, right? Yeah. 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 No, it doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Uh, there was a TV series created recently that's just kind of a general Stephen King lore series called Castle Rock. Yeah. And it actually became the production company of Rob Reiner. Oh, 
I have seen that. Right? The yeah. lighthouse? Yeah. yeah. I never made that connection. Wow. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of like really, you know, it, it appears in a lot of different Stephen King stories. Yeah. The movie does transplant it, though, into Castle Rock, Oregon. Yeah. I'm guessing they just like. I think they wanted to film there. Well, they probably had to like they probably had like very specific needs in terms of like train tracks and like yeah. the the trestle um, overpass over the river mm-hmm. and you know probably landed there and we're like well it's definitely not Maine so let's not even <laughs> act like it is yeah exactly <laughs> uh, but so they're gonna uh, walk along the train tracks they estimate it's gonna take like two days mm-hmm. uh, to get to the body and then they'll um, hitchhike back yeah so before we talk. And get into like the journey. We just want to take a little interlude and talk a little bit more about Gordy and his situation with his brother. In the book, we hear a lot about how even before his brother died, his parents really didn't care about him. Yeah. Like he was the like his brother Dennis was born and his parents loved Dennis. And then Gordy was born 10 years later on accident. Yeah. And it kind of feels like he's not wanted. Yeah, his parents his parents are just like fully focused on uh Dennis's like football career and mm-hmm. like his friends and his life and you know everything going on with him. And what's also interesting too is the book kind of talks about how it kind of takes to a different the movie takes a different approach. Yeah. Cuz the book talks more about like and I think this is like makes a lot of sense. Because Dennis was a lot older than Gordy. Yeah. So they didn't really have, like, a strong relationship. Yeah. And I do think that's true that, like, the more years between siblings, the harder it is to, like, have a strong relationship, especially when you're younger. Yeah. And how, you know, Gordy's sad that his brother died, but it also doesn't feel different to him that much. The only difference is, like, seeing how devastated his parents are. And I love how the book actually mentions that later on when Gordy was in high school, he would read a book called The Invisible Man, um, which is a story about a black man, and that he actually found himself identifying very strongly with that story, mm-hmm. feeling like he was never seen by his parents, never noticed unless he did something bad, Yeah, and that they didn't care about him. And the movie is different. They have Gordy have like a stronger and more close bond with his brother, which is who's played by John Cusack in this movie. (laughs) Yep. I wasn't honestly a huge fan of this in the film. Really? Well, I think the first I just think specifically the first scene where we see them interacting. Yeah. It feels like too. Feels a little cheesy. It does. It feels baseball cap. Yeah. And like, hey, kiddo. And like this overly. I I don't know, like, not that there couldn't have been a moment like that. And maybe, like, oh, Gordy's, like, remembering things better than they even were because his brother died. But, like, I don't know, it's kind of interpreted, like, that just seems to be how it was. Yeah. And especially that first scene, I was like, eh, this is a little bit too cheesy. The second scene with Dennis in the movie is better because it shows kind of, like, the whole family dynamic. Yeah. Which I think is really illuminating to Gordy's situation. You know, it's the four of them at the dinner table, and the mom and dad are just talking to Dennis about his football and, like, this girl that likes him and, like, how proud they are of him. And Gordy is just there, and, like, he tries to speak up. And even Dennis tries to bring up, 
like, hey, have you read Gordy's story? It's really good. So you can see that like he's trying to advocate for his little brother. And I think that at least that dynamic of like his brother knows about his interest in writing. Yeah. And being kind of one of the only people who's like supporting that. Yeah. That at least gives like their relationship a little bit more of a foundation, even if it is like still overly like positive and yeah. like cheesy. It's at least a little bit more like grounded in something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so like very different takes in the book and movie as to like what their relationship was. Yeah. And then the book also has this whole section <laughs> because like it's so interesting because Gordy in the book is a writer. Yes. So Gordy is writing about, you know, his childhood. It's kind of like a memoir type thing. But he there's also like snippets of writing, like a short story that Gordy wrote. So it's a novel, like a short story within a nut, no- like a novella yeah. within a short. Like, it's just crazy. And if you're wondering, oh, what 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 is this like additional short story inserted into this one? Yeah. That's so important that like it has to be in this like not novella that's already like very condensed. Yeah. Like what could the topic be that's like so integral to Gordy's story? Well, the title of this short story is Stud City. Yeah. (laughs) Which I still don't know what that means. No. And it's like this character Chico and he has this girlfriend, but his his brother also died and he's like dealing with that. But like his brother maybe slept with his stepmom. I was like, what the hell is happening in this short story? (laughs) I just have to read because like the tone of it is so overly dramatic and like dumb. I'm just going to read you part of it. Chico? Her voice is puzzled. He will have to change the sheets before dad gets back. She bled. What? I love you, Chico. That's right. (laughs) Dirty March. You're some old whore, Chico thinks. Dirty, staggering, old, baggy tits March with rain in her face. (laughs) Just commenting on the month of March here. (laughs) The misogyny runs deep in this story to the point that he's like gendering the months. Uh, The month of March. And being like this old hag. You know, like what did March ever do to you? (laughs) Yeah, what the fuck? Chico. It's, uh, it's so funny, though, because Gordy, as the narrator, is like, oh, yeah, I wrote this in a, like a college writing course. Yeah. And it was like one of my first attempts at writing. And I look back at, on it now and cringe. And I'm like, the, the level of like meta commentary that's happening right now is blowing my mind. Yeah, because like, you know, when the story starts, it does read as being like overly dramatic and like yeah. lame. But first of all, there's a good bit of that short story. Like, I don't know how many pages in the book. It's pretty long. I'm like, that's a lot of r- to read for a story <laughs> then you're, that you're later than like, boy, that sucked, right? I'm like, yeah, it wasn't that good. Why did you make me read so much of it? Yeah, and I don't really feel like it had that much to do with the plot and Gordy's development, really. No, it happened like too early on in the book. Yeah. And, and secondly... I think the idea or the potential is fascinating because you have adult Gordy, right? Who's got a like a stable career as a writer. Things have like settled out for him in his life. He has kids. Mm -hmm. You're reading about his memoir as a child, you know, where like this thing is going on with his brother. and This this pivotal moment in his life. Yeah. And then you have this short story he wrote that is obviously somewhat based on his teenage years. And his brother's death. And his brother's death. But, like, he 
kind of um, discredits so much of it as being like hyping up the story with like bullshit um, character faults and like over dramatizing it to the point where I'm like, well, it doesn't seem like much of this is based in reality. Yeah. Like I thought he had a really like angsty, bad like section of teenage years. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to try to parse out like what from that in the story is true. Cause or, we don't have a, an account of that time. Either. No, but like ultimately I don't think it, it didn't give us enough clues as to like what was real and what wasn't in that story. Yeah. And additionally, like it was just too long. It was and, so long and too early in the book to even feel <laughs> anything for anything. I, I don't know. Yeah. I was like, I could have uh, gone without this. Stud City, Adina. <laughs> whatever. I'm going to f- pass on that. Whatever the fuck Stud City is. <laughs> Let's get back to the gang. They're about to go on their trip, and Chris has snagged his dad's gun just in case. Yes. Uh, he is very excited to show Gordy the gun. Yeah. They go, they go out back <laughs> into the alleyway where Gordy's just handling it and probably, like, pointing it at his own face and at his friend's face. Until he, like, points it at a trash can and pulls the trigger and, oh, surprise, there's a bullet in it. Yeah. <laughs> or a round or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the way this is, like, played off in the film, after the gun goes off and them going, Jesus, at the same time. And, and like, running. Is, like, very funny. Yeah. And I really love it. Um, but it's also followed by this interesting moment of, like, Gordy being pissed at uh, Chris. Yeah. Because he thinks he, like, set him up to make fun of him. And then Chris kind of gets, like, very earnest. Yeah. And is like, I didn't know. Like, I'm really sorry. I didn't know that was in the gun. Yeah. And it's kind of like this, like, moment of, like, very, like, the sincerity between them. And you kind of see this side of Chris. Yeah. I think, which is very interesting. And it's hinting at their bond. Pretty, yes. Pretty early on. Yeah. Um, in the film, we then get a scene. Because, like, this is a very... Faithful adaptation. Oh, yeah. Pretty much like faithful plot by plot, plot point by plot point. Yes. Uh, But we get a smart introduction here of the character of Ace. Yeah. He's the ringleader of this group of like teenage hooligans. Yeah. Of which both uh, Vern's brother (laughs) and Chris's brother are a part of. Yeah. And it's because like in the book, he's like name dropped early on, but we never see him until like just at the end. Yeah. So I think it was smart to like show. Mix him in. Yeah. And and so he runs into uh, Gordy and Chris. Played by Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. Who's just so good. Very sinister. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he gives them some shit. He like throws Chris to the ground and threatens to burn him with his cigarette. And it was funny because... He steals Gordy's hat, Mm -hmm. which in the first flashback of his brother, we find out his brother gave him in this like very sweet, cheesy moment of like, this is my favorite cap and it's going to protect you and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And Ace takes it in this scene and we never see it again. Yeah. Gordy doesn't get it back. Which I had no idea until I read about that later. And I was like, holy shit, we never do see that hat again, do we? Yeah. It's kind of showing how mean and like cruel Ace is, you know? Yeah. And in fact, like, he hands it off to his friend, kind of implying that he doesn't even care about the hat. Yeah, it's just the bullying. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I I thought that was so funny that I didn't even notice because the hat is almost built up to be significant and then it's just gone. It's like, (laughs) bye. (laughs) (laughs) And then they start out on their journey 
and quickly find out that no one brought any food. So 12-year-old. Yeah. Only two of them brought canteens for water. <laughs> um, but in the movie, Vern brought a comb. <laughs> <laughs> I love the comb addition. It's so funny. I know. Because they get in an argument like very early on about it. And the friends are like, you don't even have any hair to comb. And he's like, I brought it for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly like priorities in a 12-year-old's brain. Yeah. So they come up with an idea of like, all right, they'll go you know, to the dump first, fill up their canteens. Then they'll go to this corner store, this shop get some food um but first uh teddy decides to upgrade his truck dodging to train dodging yes uh his friends are like no "No." (laughs) and in the book it's gordy who gets in like a physical fight dragging him off the track yeah and in the film it's chris yeah um i really love in the film that like the sound of the train swells into like the soundscape and you can't really hear what's going on. In their fight. Yeah, and, and during their fight. And in fact, like you only see part of the fight through between the passing train cars, which yeah. I really loved like visually. Mm-hmm. But just kind of showing like they do have not a rivalry, but they do butt he- heads frequently. Yeah, and just showing how irresponsible and dangerous Teddy's behavior can be like he just is like yeah I'm gonna stand in front of this train and wait till the last possible second and they're like we don't we're on a mission here like we don't have time for your like you know quest of like vengeance (laughs) against like trains or like (laughs) trying to prove yourself you know and in fact in the book they kind of mention like the train driver could like report us and then we would get caught yeah and our plan would be foiled all because you have to prove something to yourself yeah, and they almost use that as their excuse for why they, like, grabbed him. And they're like, yeah. you can totally dodge one on the way back, man. Like, yeah. it's fine. Yeah, it's not that we didn't think you could. Cause he's like, I could have. And they're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> sure, Teddy. Sure. <laughs> right. So they stop at the dump. They get some water. We get, like, just kind of moments between them kind of seeing. Like, like shooting the shit. Yeah, their interactions, which is really great. And then they flip coins to see who is going to have to walk to the corner store to get food. Yeah. And they all, so they all have quarters, they all flip it, and it all comes up tails, which is apparently known as a goocher. And it's very bad luck. One of these things where I'm like, is Stephen King making up these folksy New England references? References, because there's like things like that. And then there's other things like, I don't know, he, he he uses so many expressions, folksy expressions that sound like they're real. But he, like, over the course of his entire writing career has thrown out so many of them <laughs> that I'm like, he's got to be making Some up a of lot these of are these. Fake. Like, yeah. a, like at one point he says the dog was ugly enough to stop a striking clock. Yeah. And I'm like, that sounds real. But also... How would we know? How would, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, is Stephen King just, like, coming up with all of these, like, on the spot? Who's People to who say? live in Maine and who are alive in the 50s, please let us know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's a broad section of our listening audience. <laughs> Maybe. Is boomers in Maine. <laughs> <laughs> Write to us at cover to credit spot at gmail.com. At gmail.com. <laughs> uh, so... Gordy takes off on his own. Yeah, because he they roll again. Oh, not yes. roll. They flip again. And then everybody else gets a tail and Gordy gets ahead. So he has to go. 
In the book, this is described as very significant as to the fates of the rest of the characters. <laughs> yeah. So, like, the bad luck seems to be an ominous tone. So, basically, the moral of the story is if you flip a goocher with your friends, just go home. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone disperse. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, Gordy takes off by himself. He goes to the corner store. Uh, part of the interaction in book and movie is the same where the the store owner is kind of like talking to him about his brother. Yeah. Being very tone deaf as to being like, maybe I should be talking to this traumatized child about his dead brother. Yeah. And how great he was. Yeah. How everyone loved him so much. Oh, man. We all miss him. I'm sure nobody misses him more than me. <laughs> uh, but then there's just like interesting interaction in the book where like. He's also really shitty. Yeah. And he's, trying to cheat Gordy yeah. out of hamburger meat. Because he's like weighing the meat and his thumb is literally on the scale. And yeah. Gordy calls him out on it. He's like, hey, your thumb's on the scale. He's like, oh, what? What? Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. And then he gives him the total and Gordy's like, no, you added it wrong. And, and the guy's like, like oh. Who do you think you are? Some kind of freak? Some he's kind like, of smart ass? Uh, I can add. I'm sorry that you can't. <laughs> And he kind of just tells, like, they get in, like, this, like, argument. Yeah. And Gordy just tells him to, like, fuck off, like, literally. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Gordy has had enough. He has. He's just at the end. He's, he's a loose cannon kid <laughs> at the edge of, at the end of his rope. This doesn't happen in the movie. It's just a sad scene of him remembering his dead brother. But then he gets back to the junkyard, but none of his friends are there. Mm-hmm. And he realizes it's because... The junkyard owner and his ferocious dog have returned, and so his friends have fled. And then Gordy sees them. The dog sees him. Gordy makes a run for the fence. It's very dramatic. <laughs> the way, because it's set up earlier about how, like, vicious this dog is. Chopper. And chopper. <laughs> and I remember the movie line. I forget if it's from the book or not, but they said, Chopper is the most feared and least seen dog in the whole town. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll, he, like, talks about how, like, the owner Milo has him trained to like six specific body parts on a person. Yeah. So he might say like chopper, uh, chopper, sick leg or chopper, sick balls. <laughs> and in the movie, as he, he hears the owner yelling at him as he's running away and the he's like, you got back here, kid. Hey, hey, you. And he goes, chopper, sick him, boy. And in the voiceover, he says, but what I heard in that moment was chopper, sick balls and it cut like it's kind of snap cuts to gordy just being like ah like <laughs> screaming <laughs> like just the voiceover and the edit and yeah. him screaming like are so funny and i always just appreciate a director using like the edit of a film to really like in a funny way yeah to really play up a joke effectively mm-hmm. but uh gordy manages to outrun the feared chopper Yes. And when they're safely on the other side of the fence, Teddy decides that it's a good time to mock the dog and the junkyard owner, leading to a screaming match between Teddy and Milo, the junkyard owner, in which Milo says, uh, you're a son of a loony. Yeah. Your dad's a loony. He's up at that veterans hospital and he fucked up your ears. He's crazy. Yeah. And this like snaps Teddy into, like, a frenzy. Yeah. Uh, he lunges at the fence, and, hit, like, his friends, everyone has to, like, restrain him and pull him back, and... He's literally ready to fight this grown man who's, like, 200 pounds, 300 pounds on him. Yeah. They manage to restrain Teddy. Like, it's a very 
in the book especially it's a very prolonged argument i think it could have been trimmed down and was yeah. in the film effectively um i love how one of them because he's like mocking a war vet and one of them is like where the fuck were you during the war and he's yeah. like ah <laughs> <laughs> and his friends are defending him you know they're they're all defending teddy's dad to this guy and pull teddy away and then once they're kind of separate, Teddy kind of like is breaking down and he's like, you know, my dad's dad is a hero. And they're all kind of like they don't know what to say because you yeah. can tell that they all think that Teddy's dad is crazy yeah. and doesn't deserve this admiration that Teddy has given to him. Yeah. And in fact, Gordy specifically is like he couldn't understand how Teddy could admire his dad so much. When he himself barely gave a shit about his dad. Yeah. Who, like, has barely put a hand on him his yeah. whole life. But, like, he doesn't like or care about his dad at all. Mm-hmm. Um, But Chris is the one to kind of, like, talk Teddy down. And, and it, you know, it, it's really sweet. And he's just kind of like, he doesn't know your dad. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, he's just a piece of shit. And, you he know. He wasn't in the war. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And just kind of is like, this doesn't change anything, does it? Like, he doesn't yeah. know anything. And yeah. Kind of like, he's not like, your dad's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good strategy, I think. <laughs> he walks that line very well. <laughs> yeah. And I think the kids are all kind of aware of that line with yeah. Teddy. Yeah. And I think that's, like, the discomfort they're all kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, But, like, this is one of the many moments we see in the film of these young boys kind of being very emotionally vulnerable with each other. Yeah. And I don't even think in, like, a willing way. It's not like, oh, I'm choosing to do this. It's time for me to share. Yeah. But it's just kind of like they're each in different moments overwhelmed with feelings Based on something going on in their own lives. Yeah. And trying to support each other. It's interesting because I feel like almost everybody, I don't know if Vern really has this, but like almost everybody has this kind of breakdown moment Yeah, where they're sort of dealing with the things in their life that they've just accepted so far and Mm -hmm. have gone along with. And they're kind of like, is this my life? And they're really questioning and trying to see a path forward. And Teddy in this moment is trying to continue in his state of denial that he's been in his whole life, which is my dad's a hero. My dad's done nothing wrong. My dad is great. I should be just like him. Yeah. And you know, I'm fine with Vern just being Vern. Yeah. Like I think if all four kids had some kind of dramatic element to their story, it would have been like too much. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would have been like, all right. Like, I think it's okay if one of these kids is we just We get like... it. The kids are fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you just let, just Vern's being Vern. Just let Vern be Vern. Yeah. <laughs> then, um, you know, they're kind of continuing on their journey. And Gordy and Chris have this conversation. The two of them are walking together in the movie. This happens at a different part in the book. But, you know, Vern and Teddy are walking up ahead. And Chris kind of brings up, like, everything is going to change this school year. We're going into junior high you're going to be taking college courses and I'm going to be taking shop classes with the rest of the fuck ups, basically. And Gordy's kind of immediately like, fuck that. I'll take shop classes too. Yeah. And he, you know, he kind of says like the college classes are for pussies and Mm -hmm. he's not a pussy. And, but Chris is kind of quick to like shut that down. Yeah. And specifically he's talking about his ability to write and come up with stories Mm -hmm. and being like, you have, like, a passion and a gift, and, like, you need to, like, 
hone that and do as much as you can with it. Yeah, and he specifically says, like, don't stay behind for your friends. Yeah. Like, your friends are going to drag you down and you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And this is so, I think, specific and it resonated with me a Mm. lot in that idea that kids sometimes don't really understand these paths that they're put on in life. Yeah. And I mean, especially back then, but also today, you know, you don't take the right classes and then somehow you're behind and you can't achieve this thing. You know what I mean? Like setting kids up for failure very early. Yeah. Kind of pigeonholing them. And this is something that, you know, people of color deal with a lot where they're never given the same chances and opportunities when they're young and that affects them for the rest of their life. But Chris is really feeling that and is saying, like, you have a chance to get out of this town. You have a chance to get out of this life that I've seen, you know, my dad in, my brother's in, everybody I know. Like, you have to take that chance, even if it means leaving me and your friends behind. Yeah. And I I think, too, it kind of, like, obviously shows, like, the toxic views of, like, you know, obviously, like, he's saying it's, like, it's for pussies. Yeah. And kind of showing, like, uh, higher education and, like, achieving something like that is, like, less manly. Yeah, especially in, like, a very blue-collar town. Yeah. Um, And kind of how even that mentality... Like, if he didn't have someone in his life like Chris, mm-hmm. who was there... Because, like, his parents obviously were They don't give a fuck. No. So if he didn't have someone like Chris to kind of kick him in the butt and, like, encourage him to do that, like, who knows what, like, life Gordy might have had in the future. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, we get a great juxtaposition oh in editing between this very serious and intense conversation between Chris and Gordy with the conversation that Vern and Teddy are having <laughs> up ahead. Which is about um, who would win in a fight, Mighty Mouse or Superman? <laughs> and uh, Teddy brings up the, the rock solid <laughs> argument that Mighty Mouse is a cartoon and Superman is a real guy. <laughs> <laughs> this was, this part of the movie was so funny to me. Yeah, and I mean, like, it's worth mentioning here that, like, the comedic timing of the child actors in this film yeah. is unbelievable to me, especially because a lot of these scenes of dialogue are pretty long takes yeah. without any cuts. Mm-hmm. And it's these back and forth conversations that are meant to be very comedic. Like the delivery of the lines is very important, but like the kids just nail it so much of the time. I know. And it's so well done. And like, and I mean, a lot and of the it- editing is so aware of those mm-hmm. moments too. like, you know, holding where it's necessary, cutting where it's funny. Yeah. And a lot of these scenes are like four kids, like all four of them at once, yeah. like interacting. So like you have like, and they're talking over each other kind of. Mm-hmm. So like it's kind of, it has a chaotic but controlled feel to it. Yeah. Um, You know, I think certain actors kind of rise above like River Phoenix. Yeah. But like there's no one kid in the group who's like, eh, like. Oh, that that kid's the weak one in the bunch. They're all doing their own thing. Yeah. Which I appreciate. And I read that actually um, Rob Reiner, the director, had the kids for like two weeks just hang out. Yeah. And spend a lot of time together, play games, kind of come up with their own characters and and have a dynamic together, mm-hmm. which I think really shows because they all feel very comfortable together. Yeah. I mean, it feels like they've spent like 
tons of time together and they just have this like natural rapport with each other which just like really comes through on screen i think yeah and it's super rare for like all of them to hold up like super well because usually with like a, an ensemble cast of child actors like half of them are like really good and half of them are like fine yeah but in this case they're just all fantastic i agree now let's almost get hit by a train yeah <laughs> what a what a great setup yeah i just think this setup is so great because like Obviously, them getting chased down by the train is, like, very dramatic and exciting in the film, but it doesn't feel like it took, it wasn't any kind of leap of logic to get to this point. Yeah. Like, they're following the train tracks, and it gets to a point where it's, like... A bridge. A bridge, and they're like, well, we could fucking walk 10 miles out of our way to go around it, or we could just walk down it because the chances of a train coming at this exact moment are like very slim. But of course, you know, as you're reading and watching <laughs> that, yes, the chances are slim. But if four boys are going to cross this this train track bridge, of course, a train is going to come up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the setup, too, of like Chris and Teddy naturally just get far ahead. And the fact that the film made it so that Vern is crawling very on his, slowly on his hands and knees and that Gordy is stuck behind him. Yeah. So it's making those two in the back is so good. Yeah. Uh, the train comes. Yeah, ob- obviously. And Gordy has to like literally push Vern <laughs> as they're running to like get him to go. And they they do make it, but they have to like kind of jump for it at the end to get into the embankment. It's very dramatic. Yeah, it's so well done. Uh, they used stunt doubles for some of the farther away shots um, where you just see them kind of at a distance where the train's really close. Yeah. But there's one shot that's really cool where it's like the they're the front of them. Yeah. And the train is like right behind them as yeah. they're running. But what they did actually was they used a super long like I forgot what it was like 600, 600 millimeter lens. Yeah. On the camera. And, you know, when you're zoomed in that far, it kind of compresses the space. Mm, okay. Uh, so something that's like, you know, a mile behind <laughs> them looks like it's right behind them. Oh, that's cool. Because of the super long zoom on it. Yeah. So that's how they, they did that shot is the train's actually like not even near them. Yeah. But the camera zoomed in from so <laughs> far away that it gives that impression. Yeah, I liked that. I thought it looked good. It did. I mean, yeah, it like totally holds up. It's not like any trick camera trick that's like, eh, that looks fake. <laughs> yeah. And after this traumatic incident, they're like, it's fine, though. Let's continue. Let's continue on our journey. What else could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, a lot. <laughs> a lot. They make camp for the night. They cook up their hamburgers. They smoke their cigarettes, you know. It's best after a meal. Of course. And this is when Gordy decides to tell a story to his friends. And Ian, this felt a lot more natural to the story because it's literally Gordy. Than Stud City. Yes. (laughs) It's literally like his friends being like, okay, Gordy, like, tell us a story. And we know, like... Gordy has told lots of, like, military stories to Teddy because Teddy has specifically requested them. Yeah. And he's kind of known for spinning these yarns and stories. And he, you know, tells them orally. Sometimes he writes them down. But they're like, oh, tell us a story. We have this campfire setting. It's perfect. It's very natural. Yeah. And the movie setting it during the campfire scene was, like, obviously really smart. Yeah. Um, So Gordy begins to tell the story 
of Lardass Hogan. The Revenge of Lardass Hogan. Uh, and the book once again diverges into a separate chapter that's like an excerpt. Yeah. Like obviously uh, Gordy published this as like a real, like a, a much better written story yeah in like i forget where like a magazine or something yeah yeah so what we're reading is like the adult gordy having rewritten this story essentially but i do think something is lost because in the telling of it because in the film it's just young gordy telling this story yeah and something about hearing a child describe this yeah and the humor like of a 12 year old yes. coming through in this story is so funny and seeing like actors actually like reenact this seeing it as a scene i will say though as i was reading this in the book because of course <laughs> uh lardass hogan decides to get revenge on everyone calling him a lardass in his life by entering a pie eating contest but his goal is not to win but to induce a vomitathon <laughs> um in the whole town that's come to watch this contest and like just reading the because i've never read this book before i've never seen the movie i had no context for any of this but just reading this scene of like first you know, Lardass Hogan makes himself throw up. Yeah. And then everybody else, it starts a chain reaction where everyone else is throwing up because other people are throwing up. (laughs) And as I'm reading it, I actually like laughed out loud because I was like not expecting it at all. I heard you. I was like working on my computer and I just heard you cracking up. Yeah. And I was like, what part is she reading? That's like so funny. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's good in the book, too. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it, it's also effective. But, like, I think in in the film, because it's Gordy, you know, 12-year-old telling the story. Yeah. Like, the whole town as during the What's pie What's the line? Eating, well, well okay, I, okay. Uh, yeah. But, like, the whole <laughs> town during the pie-eating contest is chanting, like, lard-ass, lard-ass. Like, this really ridiculous scenario that would, like, never happen. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then when the throwing up is going on, my favorite line in the whole thing is when Gordy's telling the story and then he's like, and then Mayor Grundy threw up on his wife's tits. <laughs> like, just this like ridiculously crass, yeah. but so funny. And especially when you Very see 12 it. Very 12 year old. Yeah. But then when you see it in the film too, and this man throwing up on his wife's chest is like, I don't know, like the humor of like seeing someone actually make almost the film version of a 12-year-old's humorous story is, like, so great. Yeah, I love that this is kind of this tall tale that he's... And we get to, like, see it play out. And I just have to say, like, this is one of those things where I don't know how this scene works at all. You know what I mean? In terms of, like, it's so ridiculous. I mean, I think it's great. I think it's so funny. Yeah. But this is something. Where, How do like, they pull it off? I know. If I heard pitched to me, like in this, if I'm like reading the script and it's like pitched yeah. to me as like a producer or whatever, I'd be like, I don't know about this, guys. <laughs> like, are you sure about this? Um, but like the movie is just so good. And it's one of those things where like the movie's so good up until this point. Yeah. It's like earned your trust. In yeah. a way. And you're like, okay. So when this scene is going on, you're just kind of like fully invested. Mm-hmm. And it's so entertaining. Yeah, it was a really fun time. I do want to like just take a minute though and talk about more about this whole like writerly insert, especially in, in the book. 
because we have the voiceover in the movie from adult Gordy, but like the book version is really like, this is Gordy writing it. These are excerpts of his writing career. Yeah. And like there's parts where adult Gordy is talking about like being a writer and the act of writing and his life as a writer. And it, it gets really hard to distinguish where Gordy is talking and where Stephen King is talking. Yeah. And then that makes me uncomfortable for different reasons. And one of them is something that I'm going to read here. So Gordy is talking about being a writer. <laughs> I think and... I know what you're going to read, <laughs> but go ahead. So I'm going to skip around a little bit, but he talks about how the act of writing itself is done in secret, like masturbation. Yes. Oh, I have... so. Blah, blah, blah. I have one friend who has done things like write stories in the display windows of bookshops and department stores, but this is a man who is nearly crazy with courage. The kind of man you'd like to have with you if you just happen to fall down with a heart attack in a city where no one knew you. For me, it always wants to be sex and always falls short. It's always that adolescent hand job in the bathroom with the door locked. So this is how... Gordy is talking about the act of writing. And then I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. And Gordy says, nowadays, writing is my work and the pleasure has diminished a little. And more and more often, that guilty masturbatory pleasure has become associated in my head with the coldly clinical images of artificial insemination. I come according to the rules and regs laid down in my publishing contract. And although no one is ever going to call me the Thomas Wolfe of my generation, I rarely feel like a cheat. I get it off as hard as I can every fucking time. Doing less would, in an odd way, be like going faggot or what that meant to us back then. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to use that slur. Oh, um, God. But this is where I'm confused, Ian, because I'm like, is this Stephen King? <laughs> it sounds like Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's just, I, I mean, I made a note of that. I was like, really long writing <laughs> masturbation metaphor. Like, it goes Too on long. for a long time. Yeah. And, yeah, like, it, it's one of those things where I, I, a lot of Stephen King's protagonists are writers. Like, a, a disproportionate amount, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it makes sense. I mean, it's like how Hollywood makes a lot of movies about Hollywood. Of course. It's like, that's what writers and directors are a part of. It's what they relate to most. So like, yeah. I'm not like dissing that, but like when you have a writer talking about writing through a character and you're like, all right, man, <laughs> I, I get it. I, I get it. I understand. Yeah. This is you. And I do just want to bring up to like the use of like the faggot slur. And then there's a lot of references in the book too of like being pussy and to be fair, like, the movie also, they use that word, too. They, like, yeah. are, like, oh, don't be a pussy or, like, I'm not a pussy, blah, blah, blah. But the book specifically talks about it from the adult perspective. Mm -hmm. Like, they, the book has adult Gordy being, like, that would be going pussy or being pussy. And that was the part that I was kind of uncomfortable with. You know... I might be giving Stephen King too much credit. In fact, I will probably say that I, I, I most likely am. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting because there is so much of that talk from like the childhood characters. Yeah. And in fact, at the end of the story, um, he talks about when he finds out about Chris's death, when he reads it in the paper, 
he leaves the house because he says, because crying in front of his wife would have been going pussy. Yeah. And like, it's such a crass, absurd thing to say. But like, obviously, that's been established so much through the characters, these child characters we've been reading about. Yeah. That to me, reading that, it made me sad. And to just think about like, how these ideas and this discourse we have when we're really young yeah. about homophobic uh, homophobia and like misogyny. misogyny and like bottling up your feelings and like hounding each other for like showing any kind of like emotional vulnerability yeah how that like just implants itself especially in men mm-hmm. up until they're adults and like those ideas are still like what drive so many grown men to like hide their feelings like that bullshit that we learn when we're really young no i totally agree is like what is still inside of us and holding us back like today Mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's like specifically what stephen king was trying to invoke with that line i do think he is being self not like self-aware but like aware of what he's portraying here because this book is a portrait of young masculinity you know it's about a boy becoming a man and his male friendships and how important that is to his life but it's also about how like toxic it is right yeah and like this idea that when he's a grown man and one of the best friends he ever had in his life dies but he can't share that grief with his wife You know, and how, like, messed up and sad that is. Yeah. I don't think Stephen King was portraying it as, like, a positive thing. I think it is portrayed as sad. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I'm not saying this whole story is, like, a disavowalment of toxic masculinity within young children. But, like, I do think he is aware of, like, that narrative thread in the story. I agree. And I think you can also say that, like... That idea is mirrored in the older kids that are kind of the antagonists of the story Mm -hmm. because they have so many of those similar like homophobic remarks and like, yeah, um, just like shitting on each other, like calling each other girls and like misogyny. Mm -hmm. But like as teenagers, it's like more ingrained and it's more like toxic and like destructive. Yeah. When they're kids, it's almost like funny yeah you know what i mean like not funny but you're like ah they're kids like that yeah. kind of thing but like as teenagers and seeing potentially what they could grow up into yeah like i think it's i don't think it's a coincidence like the antagonists are just like older versions boys. of them yeah yeah um so i think that's really good i agree so getting back to the story i do just want to like mention the movie night watch scenes yeah so good with Vern and teddy because They each take a a certain watch of the night and Teddy is reenacting like his mental image of like war heroes (laughs) (laughs) and talking, narrating himself, narrating himself so nobody can sleep. And then Vern is just super twitchy with the gun. And in fact, we just hear like, you know, cricket noises like sounds in the woods and he's just pointing the gun at everything. <laughs> it's like this like loaded pit yeah. gun that he's just waving around <laughs> frantically. Yeah. And once again, the visual comedy of like at one point he like disappears behind a tree. Yeah. And then there's a sound and you see the gun just like <laughs> point pop out. out. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of my favorite Vern scenes. I love this part. It's excellent. <laughs> 
Um, Gordy at this time in the film also has a dream. Yeah. Of, yeah, he has a dream in the book mm-hmm. that is them swimming and Chris and him are swimming and then Chris starts getting dragged down into the water. By a dead Vern and Teddy. Yeah. And kind of that <laughs> idea that like friends dragging you down. Yeah. Um, literally in this instance. Also, he mentions their like flaccid penises <laughs> specifically. It's fine. It's yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> the dream in the movie, though, is of his brother Dennis's funeral and his dad telling him it should have been you who died. Mm hmm. And this is really upsetting for Gordy, obviously. He wakes up and then kind of talks with Chris, and Chris is kind of comforting him in this scene. But then Chris kind of opens up himself about stuff that he's going through at home. Yeah, and he talks about this specific incident that happened at school with, like, this missing milk money. Yeah. That he got accused of taking, and he was given a three-day suspension. suspension. Yeah. Um, And Chris kind of, like tells the whole story to Gordy, which he didn't know, which is that, like, he did take the milk money, but he tried to give it back. Mm -hmm. And he gave it to the teacher. Yeah. Only for the teacher to then turn around and uh, suspend him for this missing milk money that he stole. And basically the teacher just took the money for herself. Yeah. And Chris specifically mentions, do you remember that new dress or new skirt or whatever that she came in the next day? And Gordy's kind of like, oh, yeah, it was like really fancy. And Chris is kind of like, you know, she said I took the money. And then she comes in with this really nice outfit later and she saw her chance and she took it. And this scene is so emotional, especially in the movie with River Mm. Phoenix kind of breaking down and starting to cry and to be like, I never thought a teacher would do something like this. Yeah. And like saying do you think she would have done this for any other kid but because it was me because it's my family because of my reputation she knew she could get away with it it's so heartbreaking just feeling like he can't escape that legacy and needing to like feel like he can be his own person but feeling like he's drowning yeah and i remember reading about this scene that like they did it a couple times and rob reiner the director wasn't like super happy with like the emotional depth of it and he just told river phoenix like during this next scene just like think of a time like you don't have to tell me but a time that an an adult let you down yeah and just use that and that was the scene that ended up in the film and he Mm -hmm. said i never like was told what he was thinking of like it it was probably a parent or something like that but yeah um yeah i mean it's just like so emotionally raw and sad. Yeah. And I think Gordy, too, is like, let's take these college courses together. Like, we can do it together. And I really love this reversal. Yeah. Of, you know, at first, Chris is like, you have to go on without me. Like, you have to do this yeah, thing. Yeah, he's and, like motivating Gordy. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like a lot of other stories would have been like, and then Gordy shouldered all of their honors and like did his own thing because of the sacrifice Chris made or like but like he encourages Chris like you should do it too like I know you could and he's the one and Gordy comforts Chris in this scene I love that they they both have these moments where they're there for each other and he's you know telling him like you can do it I know you're smart like we can study together we can we can get out together we can do this and I, I just love I love this moment so much. It's so good. And it's worth mentioning to a pop culture detective who's a YouTuber that talks about a lot of times like masculinity and stuff in yeah. uh, media. 
and culture uh, did a video just recently about called Boys Don't Cry. Yeah. And it's all about the depiction of men crying in films Mm -hmm. and just how typically limited it is in terms of like men only cry in films when like their wife dies, their wife is shot in front of them. (laughs) Like then they can cry (laughs) or like at a funeral of their wife or whatever. (laughs) Um, But like very few films broaden that idea of like it being appropriate for men to cry and but this is one of them, I think. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, they're 12. So, you know, it, it, it's probably like maybe got away with it for that reason. Yeah. Or felt more comfortable to do these scenes. Mm-hmm. But it is so, I don't know, it feels so liberating to watch these scenes and these characters, these young boys just to be so vulnerable with each other. And to have that vulnerability um, not like pushed back in their face. No, or mocked or yeah, anything like that. Yeah, they're just supported and comforted by each other, which is really awesome. Yeah. Let's catch up with Ace. What has Ace been up to? Um, Ace is just living his best life. Ace in the movie anyway. We get none of Ace in the book until the end, like we said earlier. But the movie, I mean, they have Kiefer Sutherland, who's really awesome. He's definitely a standout in this film. So they're like, we have to have some more Ace scenes. Yeah, which I think is great because like, if you want to build up this like final confrontation, you have to show Ace more. Yeah. Um, so we see him and his like gang of like teenagers, teenage delinquents. They're cutting the word cobras into their arms. They're, uh, uh, hitting mailboxes with baseball bats. (laughs) Your usual Tuesday or whatever day it is. Yeah. Um, but at some point, uh, um, Vern's brother and his friend who found the body who had promised to like keep it a secret. I love both at the same time in like different yeah. settings uh, confess to what happened mm-hmm. and Ace finds out about this body. And so Ace basically gets the same idea that the kids have of like, hey, let's go and find that body. And then we'll be like, you know, interviewed for the news and shit. And it'll be like super cool. Yeah. And then we also get a scene of them driving and they kind of like are racing this other car of teenagers that are probably their rivals or something. No, I think it's the same group of because they came in two cars. Oh, I see. Yeah, because there was like there's like eight of them. There's a there lot were of them. so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> OK, yeah, yeah. So they're like racing each other. And then this vehicle, it's like a logging truck yeah. comes up and Ace is playing chicken with this logging truck. And he doesn't back down. In fact, the the logging truck swerves and then logs just go flying everywhere. And I think this is showing us, definitely showing us Ace's like unflappability and his coldness and how like psychotic he is, honestly. Yeah. It's a great setup for the final confrontation. Yeah. To show that like this isn't a guy who like backs down easily. So... Yeah, Ace and this group of teens are on their way via car. Yeah. Cheating, basically. <laughs> Cheating because um, Gordy and his friends are all going on foot because they need to as a rite of passage. I don't know. <laughs> it's a whole thing. It's a whole metaphor. <laughs> it's like a manliness thing. I don't yeah. know. Uh, what happens next? Oh, the leeches, The Ian. leeches. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> it is a bit weird. So in the in the book... 
they just come across this like dammed up creek area yeah. along the train tracks that they decided to jump into to cool off. Because they're really hot. Because it's yeah. so hot. In the film, they're like, oh, it'll be faster if we cut through these woods. Yeah. Which geographically feels weird because they're on the tracks that the body is beside. Yeah. So it's like, how is this going to be faster? I don't know. But I, I understand geographically like why they had to do that for the filming. Yeah. Um. So they get in to the creek or the bog or yeah. the they body fall of in, water. Whatever happens, they're hanging out. Some of them are playing. They get out. And realize that they are all covered in leeches. I just want to say this is my worst nightmare. I have been terrified of leeches since I was a child at like really? summer camp. Yeah, because like I, I would go to like camp and we would swim in like ponds and things. And they'd always oh. be like, be careful of leeches. Like make sure you like inspect your body after you come out of the pond. And I'm like, I don't want to go in the pond now. <laughs> <laughs> so you're already braver than I was, though, because I was just like, I'm just not going to go in there. Yeah, I had no fear of leeches <laughs> because I never went in any natural body of water as a child. <laughs> but oh, my God, the scene when they're like pulling the leeches off each other, and then Gordy looks down in his underpants, and there's a leech on his balls. It's like, (laughs) at least in the movie, like, kind of funny, kind of terrifying, because he just, like, looks in his underwear, and then he looks up at uh, Chris, and he's just like, I I forget what he even says. Yeah. Like, he just says Chris, but it's in, like, such a high-pitched, like, terrified voice. (laughs) And when he takes it out, he then in the film just immediately passes out. Yeah. In the book, it takes a little bit of time. But like, obviously, they've had like their blood sucked out by leeches. They haven't eaten very much and it's super hot outside. So like Gordy passes out. It It's much more traumatizing in the book. He's kind of just like freaking the fuck out for a while. Yeah. Just like crying and shaking and like because this big disgusting leech was attached to his testicles which i mean yeah it's very traumatic enough said yeah (laughs) but they decide to push on they have to see this body and they eventually find it they find uh ray bowers and this is kind of like really upsetting for them in this way that they maybe didn't expect yeah in the in the novel actually like it's begun to rain like this building storm has been like yeah accumulating over like the course of this morning until like in a very dramatic fashion it's like now downpouring but they find the body along the tracks mm-hmm. and i was kind of shocked because like in the film it's pretty tame yeah like there's some blood around the nose and like he he looks dead yeah um but i was like oh i can't wait to read in the book how fucked up the body is because steve it's stephen king and like his limbs will be in trees and like (laughs) his head will be in a shrub somewhere and um but it's actually also pretty tame in the book as well yeah um like he's just kind of bruised on one side and the the, the uh, detail about his shoes being knocked off his feet. Yeah, because he was probably hit by a train is what they're guessing. And in the movie, Gordy kind of has this moment here by the body where he's like, why did you have to die? And we know he's talking about his brother and not necessarily this body of this boy. And Chris is kind of there to comfort him. And Gordy is kind of saying, like, my dad hates me. Yeah. And it's just so upsetting because he's really feeling that dream where his in the dream, his dad told him, like, it should have been you who died and not Dennis. And Gordy is feeling like his parents don't care about him and that they would have chosen Dennis over him. And that's like so awful to deal with as a child. 
And so Gordy really does get this moment. And, you know, we haven't really talked about Will Wheaton, but his and his performance is definitely like different from River Phoenix's performance because they they're doing different things with their roles. But I do think what he does with Gordy is really great in this scene. And what's been building for Gordy in this movie is really good. Yeah. And especially like in these scenes like talking about the portrayal of masculinity, like in movies with like adults, yeah. like adult men crying, it's almost always just this like single tear yes. rolling down a, a gruff man's face, his dimpled <laughs> chin. But like these young boys in these films crying, like it, it's really like sloppy, emotional, yeah. like intense crying, like how kids would Mm -hmm. and it's just like so much more raw and kind of impactful because of that yeah um and i mean will wheaton just does such a great job in this scene too and i love that like you know when he's like why did you have to die like talking about his brother like i don't want to say it's like on the nose because it's it's effective and like it's there but i like that it's like expanded upon to being like my dad hates me yeah which is like yeah, he's sad about his brother, but, like, what's kind of more fucked up is, like, how he's being treated by his parents at this time. Yeah. So I like that it's, like, more than just kind of the obvious brother-dead parallel. Yes. Um, This very tender moment is interrupted. By Ace and his gang of delinquents. Yes. They've come to claim the body, and this is where we get a face-off. It's interesting that the book and movie kind of differ here. In the book, they're facing off and Ace is like, we're going to beat the shit out of you. Mm -hmm. So you better fucking run. And Chris pulls out the gun that he's had in his duffel bag this whole time. And he and Ace kind of square off. Yeah. And it's a different line because as Ace approaches Chris to take the gun off him, Chris says, where do you want it, Ace? The leg or the arm? I can't choose for I you. I can't choose for you. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the line that like startles Ace into realizing that like Chris is being like dead serious. Yeah, because it is a game of chicken, you know, who's going to break first? Like Ace has the the crew behind him and the reputation. But Chris, who's like a young kid, has a gun. Yeah. So it is kind of like it feels somewhat evenly matched. And Ace does break here and is able to like he, he's kind of like fine, whatever, but we'll get you later. And but Vern and Teddy do run away in this scene. Mm-hmm. And in the book, Chris kind of like gives them shit after and is like, in the moment where we needed you, you guys took off. Yeah, which is like pretty unfair. Yeah. And kind of made me like upset with Chris. But Chris, shortly after that kind of outburst at them, kind of like crumbles himself. Yeah. And kind of begins to weep. So you, you can see that he's like. He's very upset. Pushed to the brink himself. Because I'm like, dude, like eight grown men showed up and were like, we're going to beat the shit out of you. And like, I would run too. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't care how many guns we own. (laughs) Yeah, the movie is different, though, because the same confrontation happens. You know, Vern and Teddy run away and Ace has this knife and he's about to like go after Chris and Gordy pulls out the gun. Yeah, shoots it in the air. Yeah. And I heard Stephen King, when he saw the film, was like, man, why didn't I have Gordy have the gun? (laughs) Like, he was like, I wish I had done that. Yeah. And we have the similar confrontation 
where and, and you know eventually ace is like what are you gonna do shoot all of us yeah and we get what i think is like one of my favorite lines in any movie when he just says no ace just you oh perfect it's chef's kiss it's so good yeah because it's like i don't want to say it's like badass or tough no it's just direct yeah it's just like so matter of fact it's like yeah i know that you have more people and that you would overwhelm us eventually yeah but do you want to get shot but what yeah (laughs) but what does that matter if i shoot you yeah i love it it's so good it's so good and ace backs off he's definitely rattled by this and and leaves and so in the end, after this confrontation, they all kind of realize that they can't take the body with them. In the book, it's kind of because they know if they claim credit for the body, Ace and his gang will, like, tell on them about this confrontation. I guess. In the movie, it's sort of like they realize how shitty it is to try to, like, claim credit for this body of this poor boy who's dead. So they decide not to not to get credit. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say I did not realize until we were watching the film and it gets to this point. I thought the plan was just to like find and see the body and then just report it. I know. I'm like, they're going to transport the yeah, body. Yeah, like, why are they transporting? Why are they, like, they're going to make a stretcher and, like, carry the... Yeah, and also they're going to disturb a crime scene. Yeah, I'm like, don't do that. Like, yeah. I, I just had no idea that, like... I don't know if it was ever mentioned or if it was just supposed to be implied that they would just take the body. I don't. I did not think that either. either. Okay, good. I'm glad <laughs> I'm not the only one because we're not taking it. And I'm like, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, please do not touch that body. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the film, they make an anonymous call about the location of the body. In the book, they just don't do anything. Yeah. And an anonymous call is placed and they assume it's Ace. Or like one of his gang. Yeah, that made the call. But in the book, I'm like, why would you just leave the body yeah, there and like not tell, tell anyone? anyone? Yeah. It seems like really shitty. I agree. In the movie, though, they like return home. They make the call. They part ways. And then we kind of get the voiceover telling us about the fates of all of them as they got older. You know, Vern... Got married, had a bunch of kids. Teddy uh, went to jail. (laughs) For a while. Yeah. And And now he's doing odd jobs around the town. Yes. And then Chris went to law school and became a lawyer because the two of them, you know, took these college courses together and studied hard and then was recently stabbed and 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 died. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that newspaper headline that kind of sparks. Like at the very beginning, it's you see the newspaper. Yeah. And then I love he sees two kids ride by on bikes and that kind of his memory. Yeah. Uh, then we get uh, the adult <laughs> Gordy sitting on his 1986 word processor. <laughs> just this hideous green text. Ugh. And he's typing like a boomer, one (laughs) letter at a time. I'm like, how can you type so slowly? How can you write a book this way? You're an author. You're like a published author. Yeah. And it's just him being like, yeah, I'm an author now. And he's like literally writing the book. And we're like, we get it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Also, I did not like the guy who they have playing the adult uh, Gordy. Like his voice was good during the voiceover. But like him being an actor in it. Yeah. I was like, eh. He was, yeah, it was Richard Dreyfus, I think. Yeah. And like originally they had a different actor 
doing him doing yeah. adult Gordy, but I guess Rob Reiner didn't like his voiceover. Okay. So he like recast him and I don't know. It's like he just kind of looks too old. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The book ends a little bit differently because they get back and shortly after Ace and his gang make good on their promise to get them and they beat the shit out of all four of them, although Chris and Gordy get the worst of it. Yeah, which I kind of... I don't like this, but, you know, in the movie, Ace ends with such an ominous threat about we're going to get you that you're kind of thinking about that at the end of the film. You're like, God, I hope they're all right. (laughs) (laughs) I hope they don't die. I mean, I guess none of them died. We would have known that. But like, yeah, um, but yeah, it's like a really brutal kind of attack and, Mm -hmm. and beating and. It's kind of this, like, unifying thing for them, because when they return to school, they all look like shit. Yeah. And, like, no one's talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do find out in both versions of the book and the movie that, like, Vern and Teddy kind of drift apart from Gordy and Chris at yeah. this time in their lives. And then the book gives us different fates for the three characters. Chris is still stabbed, you know, after going through law school and kind of, like, getting out of this family life for himself but still not being able to escape ultimately because he's stabbed and dies but like Vern and Teddy also have like kind of really tragic deaths as well yeah Vern uh dies in like an apartment fire yeah it's kind of like implied that it was like a really shitty kind of slum apartment that he was just like partying and Mm Um, and then Teddy died in a car crash that like killed other people. Yeah. And, and the he was book, driving and the book kind of like shames him for it. And it's just like, yeah, he was a piece of shit. Cause he like, yeah, brought other people down with him when he killed himself or died. And yeah. Like, All right. Okay. Like, calm down. But the, the kind of mythology of the Goocher is coming back here. Like yeah. the fact that the three, like the four of them got the bad luck and then the three of them got the tails and Gordy got the head. So he was the one to escape and the three of them died. So interesting. Yeah. And there's this part like after discussing all this where adult Gordy is kind of reflecting and thinking about this like specific detail about how he remembered shortly after finding the body that this kid had been killed when he was picking blueberries. Yeah. But he didn't have any kind of bucket with him, Mm -hmm. which they would have expected to see. And he just is thinking about like, he must've dropped it at some point and like left it behind. And it's probably still out in those woods somewhere. And he kind of like fantasizes almost about like, as as an adult, like, years later, driving back to those woods. Trying to find it. Yeah, like, venturing into the woods, tying his shirt around his waist, and kind of, like... Recreating yeah. this moment. Yeah. And I just kind of, like, thought this was, like, a very interesting idea to kind of, like, not quite end on, but it's, like, near the end. And just, like, him as an adult still kind of chasing whatever it was they were chasing as children. Yeah. This kind of, like... Whether you want to call it, like, this view of mortality with the body or, like, just kind of this, I don't know, grander idea that you can't even, like, put your finger on. Or if he's, like, literally just, like, trying to relive his childhood and trying to, like, rediscover that. Just, like, I don't know. It was one of those things where it was, like, very poignant and interesting. It wasn't, like, too on the nose about any particular concept. No, and also this idea that you could become obsessed by like a tiny detail of something that didn't seem as important back then. You yeah, know? yeah. So I, I liked that little tidbit too at the end as well. Yeah. So 
Which one's better? If you think about it on a limb, I'll go first. Okay. I know sometimes I throw it back at you. Yes. Um, but I'm going to say the movie on this one. I agree with you. Uh, I, like, it's been a long time. I'm pretty sure I've seen this whole thing before. Okay, I've never seen it But before. I really didn't remember a lot of it. And mm-hmm. I was like, I know it's a classic and I'm looking forward to talking about it and seeing it, you know, whatever. But I wasn't thinking about it too much. But, like, I was still so surprised by just how fucking good this movie is. Yeah, and the child actors are so good. And I do want to, like, mention specifically that, like, this is an R-rated movie. Yeah. But it's about kids and, like, how hard it was to make this film. In fact, I read about how they ran into a lot of production problems because nobody wanted to take it on. And then their financing was cut and then they didn't have anyone to distribute it. Yeah. And kind of this saga about trying to get anybody to help them make this film. And I'm like, I can see why it was so difficult because it's a movie kind of aimed at kids, but yeah. it's rated R. Yeah. And it's like about kids, but also about an adult reflecting on childhood. And it, yeah. it occupies a very interesting space. Yeah. But I think that's part of what has made it so enduring is yes. there's so few films like it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like. So many films about kids are like for kids and they're, and they're like, like two toned down. Yeah, and they're light and funny, but like few movies like are looking at childhood through an adult lens like that. But like yeah. it's still so funny. I laughed at this I movie know. so many times, like harder than a lot of movies I've seen recently. Yeah, and I really like the short story or the novella, The Body by Stephen yeah. King. I think this is really great work. And the movie is very, very faithful. But I think, you know, seeing it on screen with the child actors, the directing is really excellent. You know, the way that they kind of focus the story a little more on Gordy, I think, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, not having the sections where you have to read the separate short story and kind of just integrating that Lardas story more into the film. Yeah. And the moments I think really come through with the child actors when they're feeling like super vulnerable and they're like expressing themselves and having these like emotional moments to see it and to see it done so well, it just makes it feel that much more worthwhile. Yeah. It just gives so much more, nuance and interest to the story and just like so much more sympathy for these characters yeah i agree because i do think there is a bit of like when you read about one of the children crying for like the fourth time in the book yeah it almost loses a little bit of its edge maybe but like seeing it is just like a whole different experience and it's so well done yeah so it's a movie for both of us movie let's do a lightning round let's do lightning So first up for lightning round, uh, in the end part of the book, when they're each individually like attacked, uh, when Gordy's attacked by the bullies, uh, the first thing they do is punch or knee him right in the balls. Yeah. Which obviously is just totally devastating. And incapacitating. Yeah. And so but a neighbor woman saw the attack happened and like is asking him like she kind of chases the boys off and like asks him about it and if he needs a doctor and he says no. And in the book, she says, bullshit, she bellowed. And Evie was deaf and bellowed everything. I saw where they I saw where that bully got you. Boy, your sweet meats are going to swell up to the size of mason jars. <laughs> sweet meats. Your sweet meats. Great. And funny enough, I accidentally I take uh, book notes on Google Notes. And instead of on the notes 
section I was taking notes on, I added it to our shopping list. <laughs> I added uh, page 170 sweet meats. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I also want to mention the book has several references to other stories that take place in Castle Rock. Um, it mentioned Shawshank, the prison, which is part of um, the different seasons. Uh, other novella, the Shawshank Redemption. And then it also mentions Cujo. Yeah. Um, from the story Cujo. There might be other references spring- sprinkled in there, but those are the two that I caught. Yeah. Uh, I have to mention, I think my favorite line, maybe our favorite line yes. in the film, <laughs> when uh, Gordy finishes telling the story of uh, Lardass Hogan and everything, and it cuts back to reality at the campfire, and everyone starts like kind of giving their input, asking, yeah. like, is that really the end? Blah, blah, blah. And Vern goes, I just have one question. Did Lardass have to pay to enter the competition? <laughs> and Gordon just kind of looks at him in disbelief and he's like, no, no Vern. Vern. They just let him in. And he's like, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> he's like, and he's just like so totally content after yeah. finding that. He's like, oh, good. <laughs> I also have to mention from the movie, there's a part where um, they're like, swearing and it's actually the scene where um chris is saying like i didn't know the gun was loaded to to gordy and gordy is like do you swear on your mother's life and chris is like yes and gordy's like even if your mom would go to hell do you swear on your mom's life and he's like yes and then he's like okay do you pinky swear (laughs) as if the pinky swear is more important than swearing on your mother's life the highest tier yes of swearing so funny and then i also just have to mention the scene at the campfire when they're all just talking about random things it's kind of like cut together they're going around the fire talking (laughs) about random stuff but they keep coming back to what is goofy is goofy a dog and if so why is pluto a dog what the hell is Goofy? Oh, I didn't think about it in context of Pluto. Yeah. Oh, and now I get that even more, why they were confused by that. It's just blowing their minds around <laughs> the campfire. I love it. Yeah, it just like, it, it's like, it keeps alternating. They'll yeah. say one random thing and then the Goofy They'll thing. They'll go back to Goofy. Another random thing and then Goofy again. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, that's it for our episode on Stand By Me. Thank you so much for listening. It was it, it was very good to come back to Stephen King. Yes, it was a good say. return. I sense that we will come back to Stephen King again. Let us know if you have a favorite Stephen King adaptation or you know book or movie that you'd love us to talk about. And yeah, we'll try to fit it in. And if you're a patron, you actually get priority scheduling on any episode requests that you send to us. So patrons, send us your requests. And if you have something you'd really love for us to cover, consider being a patron. And you can find us at CoverToCredits.com. We have all of our social media info there. You can get to our Patreon from there as well. Yes. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, please consider giving us a uh, a positive review, whether it's just a star rating or a written review. It uh, just really helps us in the the analytics and the statistics. The and algorithms. The algorithms. Yeah. The mysterious algorithms <laughs> that rule our lives. We must sacrifice <laughs> to the algorithm gods. Yes. Uh, but no, for, it, it would be very much appreciated. Yes. Um, thank you, though, for listening to this episode. We will see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.